Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 431. The gang has a wedding. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Florian, Paul, and Dylan for signing up already. From 1066 to 1071, William had been at war with the English. Five long years of conquest, insurrections, and rebellions. And here's the thing about that. William didn't even seem to like England all that much. Not the culture, and definitely not the people. William wasn't up here trying to escape his homeland. Normandy suited him perfectly. In fact, there wasn't a single year where he failed to visit the duchy. While, in contrast, following the initial five-year period of rebellion, William never again spent a full year in England. And there were at least five years, and perhaps as many as seven years, where he never even bothered to visit England at all. If you want to know how this king felt about his new kingdom, take a look at the fact that he only ever deigned to visit England when it was under threat of invasion or beset by rebellions. And from late 1074 to mid-1080, so we're talking about a period of about five and a half years, William actually collectively spent, at most, 12 months in England. And it was probably less than that meaning he spent no more than 17.5% of his time in the land that he had so brutally conquered. And fun fact here, that is less than half the amount of time that the modern U.S. Congress spends in session. So either those guys have a stronger work ethic than William, or they're more concerned about rebellions. I'll let you decide. But all jokes aside... The implication of William's administrative calendar underscores what England was to William's greater plan. Because unlike Canute, when William claimed England, he had no interest in becoming their king in any fashion that they would recognize from the last 500 years. He had no intent of integrating with his new kingdom. William saw England as a pot of money that he could draw upon for his actual continental ambitions. And so, he remained aloof and distant from the English people that he otherwise claimed to lead. And unsurprisingly, that didn't endear him to his subjects. Now, of course, for a good long time, no one really bothered to endear themselves to the average peasants. So it's unclear how much Unferth would have noticed the fresh level of disdain. I mean, they were just busy trying to get the land growing food again. But William's inattention was definitely noticed by England's nobility, who, of course, wasn't the old nobility. His absence was getting noticed by the new, avaricious, and incredibly ambitious chivalric nobles that he'd recently installed. And that wasn't the only thing they were noticing. You see, William was now about 45 years old, give or take. And those had been hard years. So his physical capabilities were clearly on the decline. And this is a fact of nature that everyone has to deal with at some point or another, if you're lucky. And for medieval kings, the hope is that when your capacity for the battlefield wanes, 
your political power will have grown enough to make up for that deficit. But this is where William's life feels paradoxical. You see, at this point, you could very much argue that he was at the height of his power and authority. And you would be correct in that. Because this was something that was openly recognized by his own peers. We see major continental rivals like King Henry IV and Archbishop Anno of Cologne courting William and seeking his support. And we also see him being welcomed into organizations like the Brotherhood of Cluny. And this was a highly influential confraternity. It welcomed French princes and Spanish kings and queens and Germanic emperors. It was an international ecclesiastical organization that focused directly on the affairs of the continent. And it was made up of many of the most powerful people in Europe. And William's inclusion there is really interesting because he hadn't shown much of an interest in promoting ecclesiastical power across the continent. To the contrary, he rarely left Normandy for anything other than to make war. On top of that, the Abbey of Cluny had notably refused to support his conquest back in 1066. So the fact that William was now welcomed into the Abbey's most exclusive club is exceptional. And this clearly tells us something about the amount of power and influence that he'd gathered over the last decade. And given the course of his life thus far, William had obviously reached a zenith. But at the same time, he was also in one of the most precarious positions he'd ever been in. In autumn of 1074, William's ally, Count Ralph of Amiens, had died. And with his death, the county was passed to his son, Simon. Now, Simon had been raised in William's court, and so he could reasonably be expected to serve as an ally for Normandy. But King Philip of France tried to put a stop to that. He not only tried to prevent Simon from inheriting his father's lands, he went so far as to fight a war against the would-be count in order to try and keep the Norman ally out of power. And all of this was happening right around the same time that Philip had been working with Edgar the Atheling to try and kick up a war with William on the borders of Normandy. We also know that the king was working with Count Robert of Flanders to curtail William's power. So I think it's pretty clear here that the king of France hated William. But it actually gets worse because Count Fulke of Anjou had been active in Maine, where Normandy had been exerting a lot of control. So he also was clearly up to something in opposition to William. And as I mentioned earlier, Folk was a leader that was cut from the same cloth as William. And he was also younger, so that can only spell trouble for the aging conqueror. Furthermore, Maine itself was struggling to buck Norman domination. We have letters and other documents that indicate that starting in 1074, there were efforts to resist the control of Normandy. And in one record, the Archbishop of Lyon tells us that William spent five years between 1074 and 1079 persecuting Abbot Reynald of Le Mans, which indicates that not only was there a significant uprising, but that it was accompanied by an equally significant and time-consuming crackdown. Add all of this together, and it looks very much like the French nobility were openly hostile to William. Because they were. And as for William's support in the church, well, as Pope Gregory's letter confessed, the church at this point wasn't exactly a bastion of stability, so they weren't likely to be much help either way. 
And as the situation with Abbot Reynald betrays, there were figures within the church who were very much opposed to William. And meanwhile, back in Britain, the new king had already managed to antagonize all of his neighbors and pretty much all of his subjects. Essentially, William had expanded his grip on power, but he hadn't expanded his support network. Instead, his support had shrunk, and many of his supporters were turning into rivals. And the few supporters who remained were getting older, just like he was. And that fact hadn't gone unnoticed by the younger nobles of this next generation who were increasingly populating William's court in England. And it was an English court that William rarely bothered to join. He was absent a lot, either out of disdain or out of pressing continental issues. And it was probably both. For example, in 1075, the English church was holding a council in London, and the scribes specifically noted that William was absent because he was, instead, in Normandy. And so running the show in his place was Lanfranc and Bishop Wolfstan of Worcester. Now, historian David Bates surmises, when he analyzed the records provided by Orderic and others, that William's absence in this case was likely due to the threat of war from Count Fulk the Quarreler of Anjou, who was, as I have said before, very much like a younger version of William. And, like William, he wanted Maine. So that's the strange paradox of William's reign. His style of rule and the way he had gone about acquiring authority meant that now that he was at his most powerful, he was also at his most vulnerable. And the threat that he was facing from Anjou, and also from the French crown, and whoever else King Philip was egging on, was likely why England was without its monarch here, at this point in our story, in 1075. And it is at this point where English history turns on one of the most hazardous and explosive rituals ever devised by humanity. An event where those in charge are expected to delicately dance between strict and often contradictory expectations laid down by titanic social forces. An event where even a minor misstep can lead to decades of repercussions and recriminations. Yes, I am, of course, Speaking of a wedding, or at least a wedding where my parents are attending. And here's how this whole messy situation went down. So my mom was in charge of the rehearsal dinner and just kidding. If you want to hear that story, you got to buy me a pint first. Okay. So when William's bestie Fitz Osborne died in that Flemish civil war, he held a ridiculous amount of land and authority. And because this society was organized in an incredibly inefficient way, that meant that Fitzosborne's kids inherited pretty much all of that land and the authority to go with it. Now, remember, England was largely derided by the Normans, which meant that Fitzosborne's eldest son got the best lands, meaning the Norman lands, while the English stuff got fobbed off to his second son, Roger who then became Earl Roger of Hereford. And mighty Earl Roger was about 15 years old at this point. Like I said, inheritance is maybe not the most forward-thinking way to run a civilization. And for what it's worth, it seems that William kind of saw the same problem. Because he wasn't all that thrilled to be handing over so much power to a kid who was still waiting for his voice to crack. 
And while Williams' courtiers could keep an eye on Roger while he was at court, when that kiddo returned to Hereford, he'd be a real earl, and he would be able to wield the powers of a whole noble adult, whether he was an adult or not. Even worse, Roger was an earl sitting right on the border of Wales, and King Blethyn was still marching up and down that border with his wiry bunch of boyos looking to cause trouble. So this wasn't exactly the best time to let your friend's kid do a summer internship here. But at the same time, Roger was William's dead friend's kid. And the other kid also had quite a lot of power back across the channel. So it's not like he could just kick him out of power. If he did something like that, it would threaten everyone's power. And people would start to notice. So instead, William decided to do the next best thing. He appointed some babysitters. William decided to dispatch a group of royal sheriffs who would handle all the judicial and administrative matters within the earldom. And this was the kind of solution that genuinely makes me wonder if William had ever met a 15-year-old boy. Because there was only one way this was going to end. With a sullen teen muttering about how you're not my dad. Yeah, he wasn't exactly winning hearts and minds here. But at the same time, Roger was just a 15-year-old earl. And William was the king. So what was this kid going to do? Not much. At least not right now. But by late 1074, Roger wasn't a scrawny 15-year-old boy anymore. He was an 18- or 19-year-old man, well past the age when William had been ruling as a duke. And yet, Roger was still being babysat by these sheriffs who were running around the Earl and doing his business for him like he was still a kid. And that really pissed him off. And Roger, potentially showing why William didn't exactly trust this kid, wasn't being subtle with his discontent. And then, at some point around here, another earl, Ralph de Gale of Norfolk, reached out to young Roger. Now, Ralph was an Anglo-Breton lord who had been in England since the days of Edward the Confessor. He was in his mid-30s, probably around 36 years old, so twice Roger's age. And he was the son of a prominent earl, who was also named Ralph. The top two contenders, actually, are Ralph the Staller or Ralph the Timid. We're not sure which one it was. Either way, though, Ralph was one of the rare members of court who had managed to hold on to his position following the conquest. And the fact that he was a Breton noble holding the barony of Gale probably had a lot to do with it. So we're talking about a politically influential earl who held the territory of Norfolk and also held cross-channel influence. And Ralph had a proposal for young Roger. He pointed out that despite William's disgraceful attempts at clipping his wings, Roger was politically influential. He held a lot of lands in England. He was an earl for pity's sake. And his brother also had lands and titles on the continent. Furthermore, Roger was a relative of the king because Roger's grandfather was the cousin of William's father. So Roger was a pretty important guy. And I think there's also a good chance here that Ralph pointed out that his dad was probably Ralph the Timid, which would have made Ralph the Gale the great-grandson of King Athelred. 
So both of these guys held a lot of sway here, politically, economically, and in all likelihood, dynastically. And Ralph pointed out something else. He was unmarried, and Roger had a sister, Emma. So why not unite their families? This was a natural match. And Roger, for his part, thought this was a great idea. But there was one problem. Ralph needed more than just Roger's approval here. For a wedding to be valid, the approval of the paterfamilias is important. But this prospective groom needed someone else to consent as well. Someone whose opinion was much more important. No, not the bride. Don't be silly. No, I'm talking about the king. And according to John of Worcester, William was not thrilled with the prospect of his friend's daughter marrying this Anglo-Breton lord. Now, John doesn't mention why, but it's unlikely that William was concerned about Ralph's ability to be a good husband to Emma. Instead, his hesitance was almost certainly political. If these two families united, that could create a significant power block on the island. Exactly the kind of rival that the Godwinsons had been for Edward. A united power that could easily threaten William's position in England, and perhaps even on the continent. So, at least according to John, William put the kibosh on the budding um, real estate deal. Now, the Chronicle contradicts this and claims that far from banning the marriage, William gave Emma to wife at the wedding. But I don't buy it. I think there's almost zero chance of William being at this wedding, and you'll understand why in a few moments. But beyond that, I find it very hard to imagine that William would have been okay with allowing such a clear threat to his dominance to form. So I think the Chronicle goofed on this one, and John had it right. Anyway, despite having a royal proclamation to swipe left, Ralph swiped right. And so did Roger. And as for Emma, well, she's barely even mentioned in the records, so I'm guessing this really wasn't any of her business. And so, Roger and Ralph set about planning their wedding. Before long, a venue in Cambridgeshire was selected, and they drafted a guest list of powerful nobles and family members that they could both agree on. It was a really exciting time for the both of them. But, you know how it goes with weddings. While it is exciting... It never truly feels real until the big day. And on that day, we're told that the ceremony was magnificent and carried out with real pomp and majesty. I'm sure that the proud groom, Ralph, pulled out all the stops and was up at the altar dressed in his absolute best. Same for Roger. And as for Emma, well, I'm sure she was around there somewhere. And... After a sermon or two, and a few vows and a ritual exchange, it was done. Roger and Ralph were family. Oh, and Ralph also had a new wife, so that's nice too, I guess. Anyway, the wedding was done, and Ralph and Emma were newlyweds. So you know what that means. That's right, it was time to go get a drink with Roger. And being the romantics that they were, the boys were, of course, talking about politics. It turns out that Roger was still pretty sore that William wasn't letting him govern like an actual earl. And, you know, he was totally an earl. Like, bro, 
come on. And while the popularity and power of the king seemed untouchable back when those sheriffs had first been dispatched, a lot had changed over the intervening years. And the fellas started talking about all those rebellions that William had suffered on both sides of the continent. And as they talked, it became clear how gifted these guys were at wedding planning because the nobles who joined them in the feasting hall were listening real close. It seems that everybody was seeing the same thing here. William was weak, or at least as weak as he'd ever been. And so the fellas saw their chance. Or, and I think this is more likely here, this conversation was the whole reason they actually had this wedding. Either way, though, it's through Orderic that we know what they said next. And it turns out that Ralph and Roger weren't just good at wedding planning. They were also good at crafting an epic wedding speech. And they knew that you first have to draw the audience in by starting with the positive. You wield that sense of optimism that all weddings have. And then you move to the heart of the matter. And so they declared to the assembled nobles that now was the time to seize destiny. That all wise men know that you can't let an opportunity pass you by. When the time is right, you muster your courage in pursuit of glory. And right now, through the mysterious workings of God, it was the perfect time to seize the throne. Because everyone knows that William is unfit for the crown. The guy's literally a bastard. And given how everything had been going lately, it's clear that even God wanted him off the throne. And now that the audience was fully warmed up, they decided to really spill the tea. We're told that the guys looked upon the assembled nobles, all of whom they knew to be trusted allies, and they ran through what made William an utterly worthless king and an even worse father. They reminded everyone that this guy had been constantly dragging them into wars on the continent, thanks to the fact that he was incapable of making or keeping friends. They reminded them that he was such an odious dick that he was even picking fights with his own kids. And even his own vassals were starting to desert him. And for good reason, because his crimes were known all over the world. I mean, this is a guy who banished his own cousin, the Count of Mauritane, for uttering a single word. This is a guy who kept Walter, the nephew of King Edward, as well as his wife Beota at Falaise, and then poisoned them. This is a guy who would also poison Duke Conan of Brittany, who was so honorable and so beloved by the people that this shameful murder had sent the whole region into deep mourning. But William didn't mourn because that kind of murder was normal for him. Everyone knows he carried out similar crimes against his own family and his own relations. We also know that he's willing and probably eager to do the same or worse to any one of us not to mention our family and friends. And yet it's that guy who's sitting on the throne of England, wearing a crown that he usurped by murdering the kingdom's rightful heirs and then driving the rest into exile? And if that wasn't bad enough, William didn't even take care of the men who placed him on the throne in the first place. This king's path to power had been paved through the sons of the continent, and many of those sons hadn't come home. And yet their families, now bereft and mourning, weren't even thanked for their sacrifice. Instead, they were disregarded by the new king. And if they spoke up about this, well, you know how it goes with William. 
He decided they were enemies, and he looked for any pretext to justify sentencing them to death. And as for the poor soldiers who survived, what did they get for all of their wounds? Barren farms and charnel house domains, which William then, in his greed, taxed to death, or just downright repossessed. William has earned every ounce of hatred that we all feel for him. And if he died today, it would be celebrated by literally everyone. Show me the lie. And granted, the English are nothing but worthless farmers who are mostly focused on eating and drinking. But after how they've been treated by William, even they are thirsting for revenge. So let's f**k his shit up. All in all, it was a pretty good wedding speech and surprisingly similar to my mother-in-law's toast. And I want to make this very clear here. While I did put Orderick's flowery language into common vernacular, all of the details and complaints that I listed came directly from him. I didn't make any of this up because Roger and Ralph weren't mincing words. And Earl Waltheoff of Northumbria was listening to all of this. And apparently, he wasn't as enthusiastic as the guys would have liked. But the groom and the best man just couldn't let that go. And actually, I sympathize with this. I suffer from the same flaw. If I'm giving a speech and the room is all smiles, except for one guy at the back who looks like he's just eaten a lemon, I will consider the entire event a failure unless I can win that guy over. It's a terrible flaw and a recipe for gray hair, but apparently the fellas and I share it. And so they looked at Waltheoff and they said, Hey man, surely you can see that the time to act is here. I mean, you've had lands and titles seized. You've had unjust injuries inflicted upon you. Don't you want vengeance? Join us and we will deliver it. The king, such as he is, is stuck overseas right now dealing with continental troubles that are going to eat him alive. He's so deep in it over there that he's never going to set foot on England again. And side note here, I suspect that they were referring to the growing fracas that William was facing with Maine, Anjou, and of course, the King of France. Anyway, they continue. Look, Walfioff, we aren't looking to seize everything for ourselves. We just want to restore the kingdom back to how it was under King Edward. The three of us can share England. We'll split it up with one of us ruling as king and the other two can govern as dukes. This is a clear win and one that will restore your family and the people of England back to how it was supposed to be. And according to Orderic, Waltheof was listening to this and was probably a little wide-eyed because this was the medieval equivalent of posting on Instagram about your plan to storm the US Capitol. And so Waltheof, for his part, pointed out that a little opsec was warranted here because these guys were acting way too confident that everyone was on board with the plan. For example, they were way too confident that he was on board because he was married to William's niece. He was also the Earl of Northumbria. And he'd given an oath of fealty to William. And so Waltheof told the guys that if he broke his word, he would be disgraced as a traitor. At best, he would be cast out of the kingdom and would join the ranks of Judas. And at worst, he'd lose his head and his children would be rendered destitute in accordance with English law. Either way, though, he would be in league with Satan. 
Yeah, Walthyalf was literally worried that breaking his word to William would place him on the same level as the devil. And so, according to Orderic, Walthyalf, who had previously barbecued Norman cavalry and then subsequently swore an oath to William before breaking it and joining the Northumbrian revolt, only to later leave that revolt and swear another oath to William, turned the fellas down because breaking an oath is bad. Yeah, I'm not too sure about that one either. And if this scenario really did play out the way Order it claims, I suspect it all had to do much more with politics and power than it had to do with oaths. Waltheof had fought in rebellions in the past, and in those years, he had seen a number of these so-called guaranteed wins only turn into massacres, followed by widespread mutilations and executions. And honestly... Waltheof actually had a pretty good situation right now under William. He was the Earl of Northumbria, which gave him an enormous amount of power and wealth. Or, you know, at least it would once Northumbria got repopulated. But still, until that happened, he'd still be an Earl, which is a pretty big deal given how exclusive the club was. I've had some people ask me how many Earls there are in England, and the answer is, it depends. To begin with, we started with none. And then for a while, we had people who we might call earls, but instead we called them eldermen. And then the great heathen army happened, and more significantly, Canute happened. And gradually, that term earl caught on. And by the time of the Norman Conquest, there were 15 earldoms. However, there were often fewer earls than that because people could hold multiple earldoms. But at the same time, much like everything at the grocery store these days, earldoms were subject to inflation. And so, following the conquest, we did end up with more and more of these damn things. So, right about now, in 1075, what we're looking at is Earl Waltheof being the last remaining Englishman in an incredibly powerful club that probably only had about a dozen members. And on top of that, he was married into the king's family. Politically, he had a lot to lose here, so of course, he turned down Roger and Ralph. Though I'm guessing you probably also realized that saying, yeah, he sucks, but I'm really making bank here, doesn't sound all that heroic, so instead, he blamed it on oaths and honor. But regardless of why he turned him down, Waltheof pulling out was pretty catastrophic for Ralph and Roger. Because not only were they denied support from the sizable and famously bellicose earldom of Northumbria, there was also the fact that in their matrimonial boozy rant fest, they had also confessed their entire plan to someone who was not willing to be part of their conspiracy. Oh, fuck. This is bad. And if it's not handled quickly the guys could find themselves beheaded before they even got the chance to open the wedding gifts. So, thinking on their feet, the boys told Waltheof that they understood how important oaths were to him. And they appreciated how he was unwilling to break his word, no matter the circumstances. That was admirable. Laudable, even. It was great that he was such an honorable and noble earl who always upheld his oaths to the letter. And, you know... On an unrelated note, we're going to have to ask you to make an oath right now that you will never reveal what you've heard at this feast. And Waltheof, 
probably feeling the danger of the situation, readily agreed. But here's the thing. His refusal was never about oaths and honor. And the reason why I know this is because while our records disagree on some of the facts, the one thing they agree on is that despite his deep religious belief about the sanctity of oaths and his fears of basically becoming Satan, Waltheof immediately headed off to tattle. John of Worcester claims that following the treasonous wedding reception, Waltheof went to church, specifically the church in Canterbury, where he confessed all of what he had heard to none other than f***ing Archbishop Lanfranc. And here's the thing about confession. It wouldn't be until the 13th century when the Fourth Council of the Lateran would declare that confession had to be kept confidential. And while that rule might have been around in a less official manner as early as the 12th century, we're still in the 11th century. So there's no guarantee of privacy here. Now, to be fair, Horderick has a different take. He claims that rather than going straight to Lanfranc, Waltheof instead told his wife, Judith. You know, the niece of William. So of course, after Judith found out, Lanfranc was notified soon thereafter. So either way, Waltheof was either criminally naive or he was a total narc. And it isn't a minor thing that Lanfranc was the one who's told about this. Because Lanfranc wasn't just some priest. He was acting as regent in William's absence. So we're not talking about a religious confession here. We're talking about informing the crown. And Lanfranc, hearing about how the two earls were preparing a regicidal rebellion, sprung into action. He knew exactly what he needed to do here. Because he'd heard about the complaints. Roger hadn't exactly been subtle. And so he immediately recalled those sheriffs that Roger had been complaining about. Great job, Frank. I mean, this is a bit like getting an eviction notice for non-payment of rent and then responding by paying your library fine. It's not a bad thing to do, but at the same time, we're well past that. And to make matters worse, this sudden reversal in policy by Lanfranc wasn't exactly subtle. And so as soon as the sheriffs were pulled back, it was obvious to the guys that someone had talked. And so the honeymoon was canceled because the boys had something they needed to handle. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast and help us keep it going, you can sign up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.